Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Today in the Voices of UMass Chan, we're exploring the promise of technology in America's healthcare system to prevent suicide. The challenge has been persistent and in fact is growing. Between 2011 and 2022, more than half a million lives were lost to suicide in this country. That's a 16% increase. And you may be surprised to learn that many who die by suicide do interact with healthcare providers before their death. So we're speaking with two members of the faculty here at UMass Chan, who are working hard to integrate new evidence and new technologies and best practices to prevent suicide. Please welcome Dr. Ed Boudreau, Professor of Emergency Medicine and Psychologist by Training and Director of the CAPES, we're calling it, but that stands for Center for Accelerating Practices to End Suicide through technology transitions. Also with us today is Dr. Celine Larkin, an assistant professor of emergency medicine. Thanks to both of you and for making time and welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Jen. Thanks for having us. So Drs. Boudreau and Larkin, before we get into your research, can you provide a brief overview of what we were just talking about, this, this growing problem of, of uh, increasing suicide rates in the United States and some of the specific challenges that people are facing in the healthcare system? Sure. As you said, the suicide rate in the United States has been steadily increasing for for quite a while now. There was a, a dip, believe it or not, a couple of years ago. So there's two years where um, the suicide rates actually fell, but then they ticked back up the last time we measured it, which was in uh, 2022, I believe. And then, of course, suicide attempts that aren't fatal that lead to emergency department visits have also been increasing steadily during that time as well. So it's it's really a national problem. The, these rates have really been persistently elevated in most parts of the country. And what we know about suicide in terms of patterns of utilization is what you mentioned earlier, that prior to an attempt and prior to death by suicide, people often visit healthcare settings. Some of those might be people who visit emergency departments, some might be primary care, some might be outpatient mental health. But if you look at the entire healthcare system and you look at all of the different uh, settings that a person might be able uh, to be seen, the vast majority of people who die by suicide have been seen by a healthcare provider in the 12 months prior to their, their death. And uh, most of those, however, haven't been identified as, as being suicidal. So we're not identifying these individuals so that we don't have an opportunity then to, to uh, deliver an intervention or to, to prevent the suicide because we don't even know that, they're, uh, that they have, have suicide risk. Um, that includes not screening appropriately for mental health conditions, which is, of course, a major risk factor for suicide. So that lack of screening is, is not just that we're not asking people whether or not whether they're thinking about killing themselves, but we're also not even doing a very good job with screening for psychiatric conditions, which could, of course, be the first step towards identifying if a person has uh, suicide risk is first identifying whether they have a psychiatric condition or not. So we're doing a real poor job, and therefore we really haven't been good at delivering uh, interventions. And even when we do identify that a person has a mental health problem or has uh, been thinking about killing themselves or has past history of, of trying to do so, 
we don't really do a very good job at delivering interventions either. So the screening is poor and we don't really do a fantastic job at delivering interventions that can prevent suicide. And, and we're gonna talk in greater detail about uh, all of those points that you've raised. Dr. Larkin though, I wanna ask you if you could just elaborate on some of the drivers of suicidality that, that doctors do know about. Um, like disconnection and burdensome, these these kinds of feelings, and and how are those currently addressed in the healthcare system? Suicide prevention is a really interesting area because it's what we call kind of transdiagnostic. So even though there are certain psychiatric disorders that are associated with an increased risk of suicide, a lot of the theory in this area is about identifying kind of what the common pathways are to suicidality across diagnoses and even in the absence of psychiatric diagnoses. So one of the most common um, sort of models for understanding suicidal behavior is the interpersonal uh, theory of suicide, which really talks about a combination of um, thwarted belongingness. So feeling sort of like we don't belong, like we don't have community, like we don't have connection in our day-to-day lives and perceived burdensomeness as well. So feeling like we're a burden on other people and that really suicidality will arise in in the presence of those two risk factors, um, regardless of what psychiatric diagnoses the person may be experiencing. And that those thoughts will transition to suicidal behavior like suicide attempts or fatal suicide when there is an acquired capability is, is the term that they use. So really it's about having the sort of physical availability of means to harm oneself, but also the cognitive availability. So that's why a lot of the healthcare-based prevention around suicide also focuses on on preventing access to lethal means. So making sure that somebody who's experiencing ideation doesn't have ready access to to harm themselves. When we think about the thwart of belongingness and, and perceived burdensomeness within the healthcare setting, we really want to make sure that those factors are being addressed effectively when a person seeks help and that they're not propagated or, you know, that, that the healthcare system doesn't contribute to, to those feelings, that the, the healthcare system doesn't contribute to somebody feeling disconnected or feeling like a burden. Um, and when people have really negative experiences within the healthcare system, that can often increase those, those feelings of burdensomeness and, and a lack of belonging. So we really want to make sure that the measures that we put in place in the healthcare system can help to address those factors. So Dr. Boudreau, uh, as some of our listeners may know, you've spent many years studying how to expand and improve early detection of suicide in the healthcare system. What are the challenges that are still standing in the way of this being better? That's a really good question. I think the challenges really fall into a couple of different domains. The first is simply the getting healthcare providers to embrace the idea that screening improves detection and that they're, they're, uh, then we can do something about it to prevent them. So there's a, a huge barrier right now in most settings. The emergency department setting is a setting that we know the most about. It's the area that I've studied the most. And there's this phenomenon called uh, Pandora's box that we've used to, to describe um, this fear. The fear is that if I start to ask questions around a person's mental health or their suicide risk, that that's just going to unleash this Pandora's box of ills that is going to cause the emergency department to break down. Why would it cause the emergency department to break down? It's because once you've identified that a person has suicide risk, you have to do something about that risk. You can't just ask them and then ignore it, or really you shouldn't. Um, Hopefully in the best practice, we wouldn't ignore it. 
Um, but but the problems emergency departments face with addressing that are enormous. What you would probably want in an ideal circumstance is to have the person evaluated by a trained mental health provider, right? I mean, that's what we would think would be a logical next step once we've identified the person has a mental health or a suicide risk. But that's a really scarce resource. Um, almost every emergency department in the country is understaffed by trained behavioral health specialists. So you can imagine that if you start to do the screening, you start to increase your identification and awareness of people who have risk that you were ignoring before you were doing the screening. Um, and now, if you have to get every one of those people evaluated by a behavioral health specialist, which are already scarce and which are already slow, uh, very slow to respond to evaluations um, because there's just not enough uh, personnel on site, then you can end up delaying care and causing backups in the emergency department. So I think this is true in primary care as well. So when we talk with primary care providers about their barriers to screening, it's, it's the same uh, because even though you would think that outpatient care is different in terms of the time sensitivity to emergency department care, everyone knows ED is supposed to run fast and move people through. Well, it's true in primary care as well. It's just as true, in fact. Um, people have to keep seeing patients at a, in, a, in a certain pace in order to be able to keep up with the caseload. So this same fear, I think, is a major driver for why we don't identify people with suicide risk. So... CAPES. I want to get back to your new initiative. It's the Center for Accelerating Practices to End Suicide. It's funded by $17 million grant from the National Institutes of Mental Health. Can both of you share some details about the, the structure, the goals, how you're approaching this project? Sure. I, I can talk about the overarching view of the center. So the center is designed to be able to identify best practices. So practices that we know are supported by research that are supported by you know the the investigations that we and, and many other people have done that we've identified as being important for improving the care of suicidal patients but they're not being applied they're not actually uh, being uh, delivered in in most clinical settings so there's this big knowledge translation gap so that's what the center is really focused on we know what we should be doing better but we're not doing it and we are designed, the center is designed to be able to pull together multidisciplinary teams that can study that gap. They can evaluate why the gap exists. We can design studies to try to address those barriers uh, to translation and to then study whether those, those approaches that we have put into place are actually accelerating the implementation process. So they're, they're narrowing that gap. So that's what the center is really designed to do. And it's uh, it's funded in order to be able to build these multidisciplinary teams. So we've already identified uh, people within specific disciplines that are that can be applied to the these these questions around translating these best practices to care. Now we build those teams, and those teams work to uh, to both accelerate and to study that acceleration of translation to practice. So, what are some specific examples of those, Dr. Larkin? Can you um, continue on Dr. Boudreaux's thoughts? I can speak to maybe the particular kind of uh, disciplines or approaches that I'm helping with in the center. So um, I'm co-leading the implementation science unit with uh, Dr. Stephanie Lemon. So what that unit really focuses on is ensuring that there is uniformity across the center in terms of the sorts of implementation outcomes that we're looking at, the strategies that we're using, the measures that we're using and, and frameworks as well. So 
implementation science is really about the sort of rigorous scientific study of that process of uptake of new practices. And we know that it takes on average 17 years for a, an intervention to go from having an evidence base to really being routine practice. And actually, some of them never make it. 17, I just want to make sure, 17 years? 17 years, yeah, yeah. Which is wild when you think about it, considering all of the, you know, research and work that goes into developing, you know, testing and providing an evidence base for interventions, and then many of them never actually make it into routine care. So implementation science is really about the kind of rigorous study of that process and whether we can accelerate that process. So the implementation science unit helps to consult with the individual research projects that were that are within the center and helps to ensure that we're able to um, create generalizable knowledge across the, the project. So we're focused on particular outcomes. So it's more than just looking at whether an intervention works clinically for the patient. It's also looking at, well, how many patients who are eligible for that intervention actually receive it? Because if only 20% of patients who are eligible receive the intervention, then we're really going to see this voltage drop between this original kind of uh, randomized control trials and how it's actually implemented in, in real life. So that's an example of a unit within the center that is kind of helping to provide some structure to some of those research questions. Um, and I'm also involved in the dissemination and community engagement unit. And I really think that's a, such a unique and interesting part of this center is the ability to engage people, particularly people with lived experience in helping to inform the research methods, the research measures, helping us to interpret the data that comes out of the research projects. And I really think that participatory approach is so important and it's it's the right thing to do. So I'm really excited about that. And as we mentioned at the beginning, both of you are experts in emergency medicine, but what are some of the other disciplines within a healthcare setting that you're calling upon to make sure that hopefully we can get that 17 years until some of these best practices are implemented down to a uh, much smaller number? Well, we have a, a host of a specialist. We have clinicians who work within those settings who, who are part of our, our teams. So those are what we would really consider the subject matter experts. But we also have methodologists. For example, we work with uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. So WPI is part of our center. They bring to the table a really rich group of people who focus on the technology and the digital health side. So for example, we have uh, projects that focus on using machine learning and artificial intelligence to be able to identify individuals who might be at risk based off of patterns in their electronic health records. So one of the things I mentioned earlier is that there's a reluctance to do the screenings. And typically in our traditional approach, the screenings are performed verbally by a clinician, like a nurse or a doctor. Um, but there has been a, a real uh, increase in, in our understanding of how we can use data that's already locked into the electronic health record to be able to pre-identify or, or, or develop risk panels of people who are at the highest risk for suicide. And then those people can be prioritized for action. So you can imagine, and this is already used in the VA, um, where they use the electronic health record data that's 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 derived from the the VA and a risk panel is is built and then updated every month that indicates that shows the people who are at the highest risk for suicide because they're using a, a model an algorithm that was validated through 
an extensive study that has uh, identified people who are at who are at higher risk. And so rather than waiting for them to come into the healthcare setting and then to be screened, instead these panels are are shared with the, the local VAs and there's a suicide prevention coordinator who's responsible for outreach and to try to identify uh, new services or to augment existing services the person might be receiving to help to reduce that suicide risk. That's remarkable. What is that algorithm combing through the EHRs looking for? The original models were built using hundreds of indicators. So indicators you can think of as a, uh, a data element within the electronic health record. Um, some of them are as simple as the person's age, you know, so their demographic variables. And then there are others that are mostly focused around diagnoses, mental health diagnoses, medications, psychotropic medications, and then there are patterns like, did the person come into the emergency department in the past five years for a suicide attempt or for suicidal ideation? So you can think of this, the electronic health record has all of this data that's locked in there that that's, uh, basically, basically reflects um, the, the patient's diagnoses and their medical utilization. And the algorithms tap into all of those different indicators. And it typically looks back at a, a window of time because it's retrospective uh, data indicators that are used to be able to predict whether the person has uh, suicide risk. And um, those indicators have been validated through a series of studies that have demonstrated that they can, in fact, improve our ability to identify people who have died by suicide. So all of those formative studies were done, and then it was translated into practice. And the VA is a special circumstance, as you probably realize, because they have access to all of the claims data for veterans, even if the person is seen outside of the VA system. They have a really, really rich data set, a very comprehensive data set on any person who is who is uh, covered by the VA. And so that's how they have validated the algorithms and then applied it in actual practice. Um, that's a good example of that translation that I was talking with you about that was very, very rapid because they developed and, and, and validated this algorithm. And then within a two-year period of time, it was being used clinically. That two-year period, like what Celine just mentioned, was a real rapid turnaround. We don't have anything close to that in the civilian populations because of a bunch of challenges, because we're not a top-down, you know, civilian populations don't work like the VA. VA is very top-down, and if someone at the top says, this has to happen and it has to happen now, then it, they have, it can happen. Um, but in, in the civilian population, like here at UMass, um, we're trying to do a similar kind of thing here, but... It, it, the the speed has to rely more on our ability to be able to implement it without having this real structured hierarchical top-down approach. So we have people who are developing the machine learning algorithms. So that's one of those specialists we were talking about. And then we have people like Celine and others who are saying, okay, now that we have these algorithms, how are we going to situate them for maximum adoption in the easiest, most uh, quickest way within a civilian population like like patients who might be uh, seen at UMass. And Dr. Larkin, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. How how are you doing that? How are you getting the word out to other healthcare systems that the, that this exists, that it can be implemented, um, and, and that it's effective and culturally sensitive and a good thing for their their providers and their patients? 
Yeah, so within the, the new center, there, there are a couple of resources that really can help us do that and that are very novel. So within the Dissemination and Community Engagement Unit, there is a healthcare consortium, which is comprised of representatives from dozens of healthcare systems across the country. And our idea is that during the, the running time of the center, we'll be able to engage with those members of the healthcare consortium to really have their input on what are the main barriers and facilitators to implementation within their system, what are their biggest concerns? You can imagine there being billing and reimbursement concerns, litigation, safety concerns, again, ethical equity concerns. So really understanding a little bit more about what the barriers might be and then really uh, developing uh, implementation strategies to address those various barriers. Um, another really important and novel part of the center is the LC unit, which is the ethical, legal and social implications unit, which is really all about examining what are the potential ethical impacts of some of the, the technologies that we're interested in and some of the interventions that we're interested in. I think particularly within suicide prevention, the stakes are extremely high. So obviously, on one hand, you have the ethical responsibility to prevent suicide, you know, because of all of the the heartache that goes with completed suicide on the other side of, of it is the is patients rights and and patients right to sort of the least restrictive care so i think balancing those things is always very tricky within the mental health sphere but i think particularly in terms of suicide prevention the stakes are very high so it, we're very lucky within the center to have that unit which will be focused on the ethical and legal and social implications of the work that we're doing and and that might be one example of this but are there any pitfalls of using technology in this way one of the issues around algorithms that we've seen is the potential for racial and, and ethnic inequities in algorithms. Um, so we see this in other areas outside of suicide prevention, even outside of healthcare. So especially thinking about maybe the differential data collection in different groups who might get asked screening questions versus not asked screening questions and so on. So I think there are some constraints around, for example, algorithms that we want to be very mindful of, um, both in the generation of an algorithm, creation of an algorithm, and also in the translation and implementation in real world settings. As in the rest of society, when we start to rely on technology, there's a potential for losing the human touch and to losing the human connection. One of the major theories of why, why people become suicidal is they become disconnected and disenfranchised from their communities, from their families, from friends. And so, so you can't imagine that if we have an over-reliance on technology and we sort of triage people to a technological intervention uh, because we don't have human beings to be able to connect with, with the person, then you might rely overly on the technology at the sense of alienating with the at the risk of alienating the person. People come to the emergency department, they come to healthcare because they want care with the person, with the human being. And I think there's a risk that if we rely too heavily on technology, that that um, it disenfranchises um, patients. Um, and I think the, the second big issue is what I mentioned earlier. There's a there's an ethical obligation to respond to a person who is suffering, a person who is sharing with us that they're thinking about uh, killing themselves, um, but we don't have the capacity to really do the job that we should do. And so there's an ethical dilemma there uh, because we know we should act, but we often don't have 
sufficient resources to provide the best care. Uh, and I think that puts the health system in a bit of a bind. I think the alternative though, which is what we've done in the past, not just around suicide, but other issues as well, is to bury our head in the sand and to say, well, we can't possibly provide the services we need to. So we're just not gonna ask about it, which is also an ethical dilemma. And it's, it's a way that people in healthcare systems try to address these problems. It's, they, they narrow the scope. They say, okay, well, we're not gonna ask about all these things that we can't solve. We're just gonna solve this one problem. That's also an ethical dilemma. Um, when we know that our patients that we're seeing have problems that need help and we ignore them because we can't help them. Can I add one more thing? I think uh, sort of that sense of being cared for that you mentioned as well, Ed, I think there are technologies that can create that sense of being cared for. And we've seen that, I think, with a couple of the interventions that, well, one that we developed here and one that we're implementing as part of the CAPE Center, where if you're able to incorporate, for example, videos of people with lived experience, if you're able to present the intervention as something that is you know, has been created specifically designed for you. You know, there are lots of people like you who come to the emergency department feeling the way you're feeling. And this is something that we've developed that we hope can help you. I think that we can create some of that sense of being cared for, even in the absence of a specifically trained mental health clinician, we're able to maybe approximate some of that, that feeling of connection, um, which may be counterintuitive, but I think that's kind of some of the feedback that we've been receiving with the interventions that we've worked on. So it's really it can be really heartening in that way if it's designed, I suppose, in collaboration with the people who are the end user. If it's if it's if there's iterative feedback from the community, then I think you're able to get closer to to something that approximates that feeling of of caring. Thank you for that. And all the more reason to have the technologies flag those who might be at greatest risk, right? So the resources can be devoted to their care. That would be the holy grail. The holy grail in this area is if we can design. Um, interventions or or care procedures that technology is really good at doing that human beings aren't very good at doing, but we're asking human beings to do it anyway. So if we could take that group of work and push it to the to the to the machine, and it actually reduces the burden that the clinician has in terms of doing some of these tasks, and they can then focus on connecting with the patient, that would be ideal. That's really what we're trying to do is figure out what should the computer do and what should the patient, the, the clinician do, and how can we maximize both of those? As an example, uh, 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 an intervention that we should be doing with all of our suicidal patients that we know is a best practice um, is called safety planning. Safety planning is a this pretty simple concept where you're working to build a stepwise plan for what the individual should do whenever they encounter a risky situation that has in the past elicited suicidal thoughts. So the safety plan is a, is a structured intervention. We train clinicians on how to do this. Um, and, uh, but we, but because it takes anywhere from, it could take up to 45 minutes to do a really good safety plan, um, at least 25, 30 minutes to do a really good safety plan. Well, clinicians don't have the time to do it. So they don't do it, but we've established both with several different projects that you can have a computer through a chat bot, kind of a chat or oriented way of doing it, you can have the person build a safety plan or at least the draft of one on the computer. So that takes some of the responsibility from the clinician 
And if then the clinician is able to review that with the patient and you use it as part of their clinical engagement with the patient, you have the best of both worlds. The, the clinician didn't have to spend 20 minutes building it. The, 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 the software helped to get, the, get, get it down, down the path. And then now the clinician is basically the person who's going to walk through it, make sure it's complete, emphasize its importance, reinforce its use, and have that conversation with the patient so that it wasn't just something that they did on a computer. Because you can see it, that's, those two things are disconnected. The patient doesn't really pay attention to it because the clinician didn't talk with them about it. And then the clinician just sort of ignores it if it's not integrated into care. So that's really what we're working on is trying to figure out how we get the best of both worlds here. Right, and where that balance is. Well, Dr. Ed Boudreau, Dr. Celine Larkin, thank you so much. We're gonna be watching really enthusiastically and eagerly to learn more about what comes out of the CAPE Center. So thanks for making time to discuss it with us. You're welcome, Jen. Thanks, Jen. To our listeners, if you like the voices of UMass Chan, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This year, you can also find our episodes on the UMass Chan YouTube channel if you prefer to listen there. I'm your host, Jennifer Berryman. We'll see you next time. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.